and welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston, and you are at the place where we talk about oil because oil needs to be drilled. We talk about diesel because that comes from oil, and we talk about whatever else crops up. Today, what's cropping up is that we're going to be speaking with Bob Poole of the Reason Institute about who is going to pay for all of the roads that need to be maintained, the new ones that need to be built, and why a user of those roads, like a driver, shouldn't be worried about letting some private enterprise into the equation. We're not going to talk about oil prices this week, not much going on there, but let's talk about a few things that did happen this week that very much could have a long-term impact on diesel. First, we had Battery Day, sponsored by Tesla in which the company talked about its ambitious plans to produce batteries more efficiently and produce a final product that is more efficient. The target is to get battery costs down to about $60 per kilowatt hour. That is far less than the $100 per kilowatt hour level at which it is now said that batteries need to be to be competitive with the internal combustion engine. Current batteries check in at about $150 per kilowatt hour. Ten years ago, they were about $1,000 per kilowatt hour. So there's been huge changes over time. But with technological improvement, you can get a lot of gains quickly, but then, of course, they slow down over time. Obviously, they can never get to zero. So how far can it go? How low can it go? Tesla's going to try to show us, and they are very ambitious. Then we had all the issues with Nikola. We're not going to talk about that too much today because you can find plenty of other freight waves media that can discuss it. But the question really becomes, as a result of the Nikola developments, not scandal, but the, the whole explosion. What has this done to set back the cause or the, the, the development of hydrogen trucks? And that brings us back to the issue of batteries, because I think now everybody in the truck transportation supply chain has pretty much conceded that no matter how cheap battery technology gets, whether it's from Tesla or someplace else, that battery-powered trucks, not, not small trucks, but battery-powered 18-wheelers, are going to be carrying too much weight with the size of the batteries. They're going to need a lot more frequent recharging than certainly I think time would allow. And batteries are going to be likely a non-starter in the truck world. But let's talk about hydrogen then. That's where there is an issue with Nikola, whose entire plan, of course, was to build, and still is, to build hydrogen-powered trucks. How far back, if at all, do the events of the past weeks set back the push to build hydrogen-powered big rigs? Because clearly, that's the alternative fuel that needs to work to have the industry move off diesel. The third big thing this week is that Walmart came out with its plan to reduce its carbon footprint through the entire company. And one of the things in the plan was to have all of its trucks emission-free by 2040. It didn't say what technology it would pursue. It sort of, it said it's technology agnostic. It did mention batteries, but as we've noted before, we don't think too much of batteries as a source of power for the engine. They mentioned renewable diesel, but the quantities of renewable diesel needed to power the nation's fleet are far, far more vast than the world will ever have the capability to produce, simply because you'd have to start diverting too much agricultural effort away from growing food and into growing renewable diesel feedstock. But finally, Walmart mentioned hydrogen. We don't want to discount the Walmart announcement. They've got 6,500 trucks, and in order to equip the entire fleet with hydrogen, would be an enormous boost to some manufacturer. But even Walmart, they're going to dip their toe into the water slowly. Their announcement included the caveat, the kind of, I would say, the usual caveats that, well, they can't do this alone. Who's going to build enough trucks? What's the refueling system going to be like out on the road, whether it's for batteries or hydrogen? These are very big ifs. And then we come back to diesel and the Elon Musk comments about what the batteries need to do to get efficient. 
The goal is to get them more efficient than internal combustion engines. So now let's assume again, I'm just trying to make a point, that batteries don't have a great future in trucks. So really what Elon Musk is talking about is getting batteries competitive with the internal combustion engines that power cars. But even with that, we want to note that what Elon Musk is competing against is something that is not static. The efficiency of the internal combustion engine has always been improving. It's improving still. And this is what Tesla cars are going to have to deal with, what hydrogen-powered trucks from Nikola are going to have to deal with, and what Walmart is going to have to deal with. There are seemingly never-ending gains in efficiency in the internal combustion engines. And if these other new technologies don't ultimately overtake it, then one of two things occur. Either diesel and gasoline engines continue to dominate, or companies like Walmart will adopt less efficient technologies to meet their climate goals. And when they do that, somebody is going to have to pay for that. Walmart's goal is 20 years away. Let's throw out battery technology as a solution. Can hydrogen technology get competitive with diesel and an ever better internal combustion engine in 20 years? That is a tall, tall challenge. Yes, there have been huge gains in technology in just 10 years in really in all renewables. But they're kind of getting to the point where the gains are going to get a lot tougher to come by. Walmart made a big commitment, but as it noted in its announcement, it's going to need some help. We're going to head on over to the highway now, and we're going to talk about what we should do with them. My guest today is Bob Poole, the Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Bob is a guy whose work I've known for years. He's always fascinating, always intriguing, and very often contrarian. Uh, Bob, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thanks very much, John. So um, I've always kind of thought that you're the kind of guy that's probably not real popular with drivers, because when you start talking about, I don't know whether we want to call it privatization, using three PLs, not not three PLs, using public private, uh, uh, private public partnerships, three three P's. I'm getting them confused with the logistics companies. Uh, Three P's for highways. The first thing that people think of is higher tolls. That's 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 the first logical leap they jump to. But anyway, Bob and Reason recently completed a study that called for more state-operated toll roads to be, I'm going to use the word privatized. Maybe you can correct me, but privatized as a public-private partnership. And you're going to talk about it today on Drilling Deep. So why don't you summarize what you were calling for in your recent study? You can do it better than I can. Okay, very good. Well, the study looked at nine nine of the largest uh, state-owned toll roads in the United States. And uh, using uh, figures from uh, long-term leases of uh, toll roads in Europe, Latin America, Australia, over the last 10 or 15 years, we estimated from these toll roads financial statements what their market value might be if, if they were put up for lease. And then of course, because of U.S. tax law, uh, if you have a material change of, of ownership and a long-term lease is considered a kind of ownership, uh, the tax code says tax-exempt bonds that they've used to finance their toll roads have to be paid off uh, incident to the change of control. So we subtracted the in, uh, you know bonded indebtedness of each toll road and came up with a net value that uh, – uh, the state could receive if they decided that uh, they could in, entrust the toll road to a global toll road company with a long track record and have oversight and regulation through a long-term agreement. The total was about $77 billion net. And uh, the largest one was uh, the Illinois tollway at $19.4 billion net uh, uh, gain from, from a 50-year lease. So, and we put out- it was, it was- Go ahead. 
I was, it, was, it was interesting looking over the list of some of the biggest ones. The New Jersey Turnpike, it was a lot bigger than the New York Thruway. And I thought, well, how, why is that? Well, let's face it. The New Jersey Turnpike is effectively Interstate 95. That's you know, right. So uh, that, that's why that valuation would have been so high. Well, the one, that's, one that surprised me was how low the net was for the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And the reason for that is it had $14 billion worth of, of bonds, um, largely because the legislature treats it like a cash cow. And for the last 10 years, it's mandated that the Turnpike turn over $450 million a year to the state DOT for transit subsidies in Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh. And so that has required big toll rate, toll rate increases every single year since then and issuing a whole lot more bonds. And so the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike should be right up there with the uh, uh, New York Thruway and the, and the Indiana uh, Illinois Tollway uh, in net value. But because the bond is so huge, uh, it's only a, a pittance of $6.8 billion. All right. So let's talk about how the process would work. Let's say it's the New York State Thruway. It's got a net worth value of whatever you came up with. What happens? And then from the perspective of somebody who's a user of it, let's say a truck driver, how does it affect them? Right. Well, first thing, the process would be the state legislature would have to pass uh, enabling legislation saying, all right, we authorize uh, the state to explore uh, leasing the toll road uh, uh, to a, a public-private partnership, uh, and uh, uh, if they get a successful, uh, uh, realistic bid, uh, to negotiate a long-term agreement. And so that would be a process. It would probably take a couple of years from start to finish. You know, first it'd be a big fight to get the legislature to convince to do this, uh, and and uh, probably the throughway uh, people would oppose it. Um, because they, you know, feel like it'd be a hostile takeover. Uh, and then if it ha- if it actually happened, you have an, a request for proposals and companies submit their qualifications and bid what they would do. Uh, and the best one gets selected and they negotiate a, a probably 500 page agreement. That's basically the regulatory oversight <laughs> with all kinds of performance measures with the limit on annual toll rate increases. Often these would have, you have to, you have to hire or make good face offers to all the current staff and management, uh, but they don't have to take the offers. They can transfer to something else in the state government. So you, all these things get worked out. And uh, uh, when it goes forward, then what would be the impact? Well, first of all, in most cases uh, there would be, and I think legislatures would would insist on this, uh, a cap on annual toll rate increases so that uh, usually this would be based on the consumer price index or some other inflation indicator. So it would protect people like New Jersey just had, the New Jersey Turnpike just had a 36% toll rate increase. That's a killer to to motorists and truckers alike. And uh, so these agreements would protect uh, uh, users of toll roads from those kinds of increases. Secondly, the other thing that I think would be very important to negotiate into the agreements is to prevent uh, the under, under the new long-term agreement to prevent the toll revenues from being siphoned off uh, using the toll road as a cash cow, like Pennsylvania did uh, is still doing with the 450 million a year. Uh, that's basically a tax on everybody who uses the Pennsylvania Turnpike to benefit local transit. And New York, New Jersey, uh, uh, the Dulles Toll Road in Virginia, there's a whole host, about a dozen large toll roads systematically uh, divert money 
that's supposed to be paid you know, to the toll road to uh, cover its capital and operating costs, uh, diverting it to other purposes. So safeguarding uh, truckers and motorists from that kind of, of being treated as cash cows uh, would be another very important benefit of this kind of thing. And this is, you know, this we right. have five. Five toll roads in the United States have already uh, done this uh, mostly a decade ago. The biggest one was the Indiana toll road lease in 2008, I believe it was. And uh, that funded a $2.6 billion uh, 10-year fully funded highway improvement program statewide, which was uh, – and the legislation to get that done was a very, very narrow – it passed by about two votes in the legislature – and uh, uh, it was so popular, though, the road, road building program that uh, Governor Mitch Daniels got reelected overwhelmingly to a second term. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that it only got that's a red state, that's a state that's I'm assuming is controlled by Republicans and was back then was and back only then. went through by yeah. two votes. So you can right. see where the how the politics of this are different. Now, when when I first became familiar with public private partnerships, one of the benefits of the that I always understood was it puts the maintenance of it, not just building new roads, but just the maintenance of the road itself in the hands of the developers. And if they don't do their job, they can get tossed out. Exactly As opposed right. to now where maintenance maintenance could be fine, but maintenance could also fall victim to, um, uh, you know, problems in the budget, that kind of thing. And so exactly. that if you put it in the hands of that private developer, you're not necessarily absolutely ensuring that it's going to get uh, going to get maintained better, but it's more likely to get maintained better. It's more likely for two reasons, John. One is it's in the self-interest to the company. Uh, you know, people can drive on pothole roads without paying a toll. Uh, if you expect them to drive on a, a toll road with potholes, they say, why am I paying this extra money uh, when I, you know, have other roads that are uh, just, just as bad shape? So the company has a self-interest in keeping and, and attracting more traffic by having very well-maintained pavement. But the other reason is you build that into the long-term agreement. Uh, there's uh, international uh, roughness, pavement roughness standards that you can measure quantitatively. You build in perform key performance measures like that, and there are financial penalties if they if they you know, you know fail to live up to them, and if they fail egregiously, typically these long-term agreements provide termination for cause. Where they, you know, the company has, if, if the money is all paid up front, which is more often the way it's done, the company stands to have, you know, put in several billion dollars or maybe a lot more and lose it down the drain if they uh, egregiously fail to perform. And so uh, this is a very powerful incentive to have them live up to what's in the agreement. Yeah, and the state has an enforce so the state has an enforcement mechanism over the operator of the toll road. But right now, there's no enforcement mechanism over the state. So the state lets the road go to hell. Well, certainly, maybe you can, you know, maybe uh, people can take that out on the ballot box. But there's that's that's a sort of it's indirect, very indirect enforcement. Yeah, it's very indirect enforcement. In fact, in Pennsylvania, I, I watched an interview a couple of weeks ago with the director of the Pennsylvania Turnpike who said that uh, because of having to pay this, uh, uh, you know, this divert this money every year to the transit uh, systems in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, they still have 80 year old pavement that had, that law has long needed to be replaced on par- portions of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the original pavement from, from the first construction that they have not been able to afford to, uh, to replace because so much of their money is yeah, going. That's, that's that's incredible. They still have payment that goes back that far? Yes, that's what he said. This is on, on Cafe IBTTA wow. a couple of weeks ago. 
Yeah. So uh, do, do you, are there any states that you think are, uh, I mean, you identified nine toll roads and not all nine are going to get done. Are there any no, that, no. that really stand out there? I mean, the, the Illinois comes to mind just because they're in such dire straits financially. Exactly. The governor has actually mentioned that idea uh, some earlier this year, uh, long before anybody knew about our study. Uh, and, you know, 19.4 billion net is a big chunk of change. I mean, it doesn't go very far if you applied it, for example, to their grossly underfunded pension, uh, public employee pension system. But it could do a huge amount for for uh, shoring up their their DOT uh, capital budget plans over the next ten years, like like Indiana did uh, ten years ago. So yeah, I think I think Illinois would probably be one of the better candidates. They have the greatest what probably the greatest need of any state. Uh, for for some serious uh, infusion of capital into their budget, um, some of the others I think it depends on on local circumstances. The Ohio Turnpike actually had did a study when John Kasich was their governor. He had KPMG do a study of a long term lease of the toll road. Got cold feet and decided not to do it, but but the study said it would definitely be feasible. It was a doable proposition. It would have a number of benefits. But uh, it wasn't also it wasn't clear whether whether Kasich could have gotten it through the legislature. Yeah, well, this one of the criticisms of uh, PPPs has always been that nobody can borrow cheaper than the state, except maybe the federal government, uh, and that if the state gives it up, uh, their ability to borrow at lower rates is effectively done. It's not it do- doesn't matter anymore. And that why would you want to give that up going forward? How would you respond to that? Well, for one thing, most states uh, have uh, uh, some kind of a, bo- a limit on the bonded, bonded indebtedness. Not all, but but many do. And so, uh, particularly in in the uh, the COVID nineteen recession and and the need for uh, uh, repairing uh, budgets, I think the states are going to be uh, very cautious about uh, overextending their their bonding capacity. And it's true the it, the bond interest rates uh, uh, for for the taxable bonds that the private sector has to use, even though we have very historically low interest rates today, will still be higher than what the state would would do. On the other hand, you're trading off a somewhat higher cost of capital for the benefits of of, protecting the toll road, uh, ensuring that it's properly maintained, controlling ridiculous escalation of toll rates that come as, as a surprise to uh, to customers and so forth. So, you know, it's it's benefits as well as, you know, cost of capital is one variable. It's not the whole story. And, and you have to look at, are there enough benefits to say, okay, it's worth paying a little more in, in, in financing costs if we get a sufficient package of benefits here. Yeah, you're talking about the rate of increase in tolls and politicians are always wary of increasing tolls too much, but inevitably that causes a backup. And, you, you know, you just think that a, a toll that's maybe tied to inflation that goes up a small amount every year, while certainly a politician can be criticized for, they raise the tolls every year rather than, you know, do that, rather than hold back and do 35% in one shot, like you just talked about New Jersey. Right, right. I mean, and that, that's that a friend of mine who was now retired, but who did a newsletter on toll roads called it earthquake pricing. <laughs> where exactly that political process makes them very leery for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, then they have this huge, enormous thing that really hurts people rather than some of the better managed toll roads, like the Florida Turnpike about five years ago, adopted an annual CPI increase. 
that came went along with the electronic tolling. So now they don't have when they increase the rates, uh, they don't have to uh, you know round up to the nearest quarter or some amount of cash that's easy for people to handle. Uh, they, you see the signs now on the Florida Turnpike, uh, the toll rate or something like like three dollars and seventeen cents for this next stretch, oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's it's whatever the CPI thing called for. Right. Well, Bob, you're always a guy that's had a lot of vision. Let's move away a little bit for that and talk about other post-pandemic trends in transportation that you might see, particularly those that you think could affect the trucking and the freight industry. Is there anything that you're thinking now that maybe you didn't think six, seven months ago? Well, yeah, I think I think we are going to have at least a temporary uh, uh, dip in urban congestion. And I know this, this plagues trucking companies when they have to go through instead of all the way around uh, large metro areas getting caught in, in, in uh, particularly in rush hour congestion. Uh, what we're going to be seeing is uh, uh, some fraction of the 30 or 5, 30 or 35 percent of people that have been telecommuting during during the pandemic uh, will not go back. Uh, and a lot of companies are really thinking hard about that. Right now, uh, the latest figures, the commuting to work figures that the federal government collects la- for 2019 showed that uh, about 5.2% of people were full-time telecommuters. My guess is that's going to at least double. I'd be astonished if it settled out to less than 10%. And that's enough to make a difference at the margin in, in rush hour congestion for a number of years, uh, most likely. I mean, continued economic growth will probably uh, uh, have congestion, you know, traffic will, will continue, will resume. But, uh, and another offsetting factor is there's going to be some permanent shift away from bus and, and train uh, commuting uh, to driving. Uh, and that is going to, uh, but tra- transit in most of America is such a small fraction. Tra- transit now on average is less than 4% of the commute. Uh, other than New York City and a few other places with historic uh, uh, metro systems. So uh, uh, if you have a a quarter of the transit people decide to permanently switch to driving, that's only 1% of the total commute uh, that would be added back uh, to being offset by the people, the big increase in telecommuting. So there's going to be some congestion relief in in the next uh, decade that uh, would not be according to historical trends at all. The other, I think trucking yeah. is in for a very, uh, you know, certainly uh, less than truckload trucking. Uh, that's, uh, you know, delivering things uh, from uh, bigger distribution centers to uh, to retailers and, and other places, uh, plus the uh, all the expansion of home delivery from, from online shopping. Uh, I think this is a, a bullish period for, for trucking uh, uh, going forward as far as the eye can see. Yeah, you talked about the uh, I just kind of want to go back to what you were saying. I mean, I agree with you on that last point, certainly Um, what you were saying about the mass transit. On the Mm -hmm. one hand, you know, you're right. It it, it takes up such a small amount. But in the places where it is very relevant, like New York, uh, truckers avoid it or they go in there and, you know, under hours of service, you get caught in traffic. And there is that kind of downside that people start taking to their cars, even for those who aren't going to telecommute, they're going to go actually back to work. If they avoid mass transit and they put those cars on the road, you know, they're going to be right alongside those trucks who uh, they may think about the good old days before the pandemic weren't all that bad. No, that's true. New York, Chicago, uh, to some extent, San Francisco, Philadelphia, to some extent, um, those are probably going to be and Boston to some extent. Those are those are the main legacy systems that have old subways and uh, uh, even, you know, 
San Francisco's uh, BART is not that old, but it's actually wearing out and needs to have uh, all the rolling stock replaced. But those cities depend, those downtowns depend very heavily on on, uh, on rail transit. And uh, uh, so there, the, uh, the migration away from rail back to cars is going to de- have a much bigger impact. And, and that will definitely hurt trucking in those metro areas. Bob Poole, we want to thank you for joining us today on Drilling Deep. Bob's the Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Always fascinating views ever since I first came into came and encountered his work. Uh, you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Waves family of freight casts. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I've been your host, John Kingston. We do hope you'll join us again. Thank you very much.